This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, December 19th. And now, please rise for the singing of our Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. We are twin brothers from Champaign, Illinois, and this is a weekly baseball podcast. Uh, Paul, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. It's been an eventful last couple weeks. I realized in preparing for this podcast that we, we haven't talked about the White Sox fire sale. So we'll get to that, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. It's been eventful last couple weeks. How are you? Doing good. It is, uh, I think, seven degrees here in Champaign today. Cold. So very cold. Uh, there's some ice that came through the last couple of days. You were stranded in Bloomington. I was stranded for a bit, yeah. The um, defrost option, heating option on uh, the car I drive, which is was our shared car in high school. So Paul stole it when he was married. I don't know if that's how it worked. Um, so the defrost options broke, and... Uh, Normally, normally it's not a big deal because snow melts pretty easily when it hits your windshield. Um, but this like freezing drizzle stuff was just sticking pretty bad, um, and uh, without a you know a melting option, it was um, making it pretty impossible to drive. I actually drove for about a half mile with no visibility out of the windshield, like it was frozen, completely solid. How'd you see? Uh, rolled down the window. <laughs> Um, then I pulled into an El Toro parking lot, which is a Mexican place around here and, uh, enjoyed a nice meal. What'd you get? The burrito loco. It's expensive. Uh, it is pretty expensive, but I hadn't, um, eaten a meal out like by myself for a long time. I felt kind of like a, a loser <laughs> on a Friday night eating a huge burrito by myself. But... Thanks for that story. Yes. You're welcome. Uh, our Nelly update, uh, Paul, have you heard any feedback on your, uh, your performance last episode? Wow. Uh, yeah, several people mentioned it. It was the first podcast my wife had listened to for, um, maybe the whole season or at least a few months. Um, what did she think? She thought it was pretty ridiculous. Then David reached out, I believe, thought it was pretty terrible. Scott from Champagne, he enjoyed it, um... But yeah, I mean, the the feedback was mostly negative. Josh and uh, Matt also had some feedback. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but you would say not as bad as you thought it was going to be. Yeah. Would you agree? Sure. Uh, yeah, and also, I didn't want to listen to that anymore, so that is no longer the intro. Great decision. Switching back. Great decision. Switching back. So you can be thankful for that. If you're curious as, uh, as to what that sounded like, you can go to our SoundCloud page or just listen to the start of episode 78 uh 78 or 79 jose Bray's number 79 well that's a good good transition yeah later on uh but first uh, our, our real nelly updates he continues to do lots of things to make a bunch of money seemingly uh as to, do most musicians well seemingly to pay off the irs he's okay. doing all these uh, ridiculous things to make money talked about the past few weeks uh but i think he's reached a new low 
Uh, Paul, have you had your work Christmas party yet this year? Uh, sort of. We have like a mostly virtual team, so we had like a, a virtual meeting. It's kind of lame. Is it like the office meeting, virtual meeting? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, did anyone try to drive to the... Uh, no, no. So yeah, I guess we did. Uh, you had yours last week? Uh, yes. Started a new job. Uh, so not ideal to have a Christmas party the first week on the job, but... Uh, Nellie's performing at Christmas parties? I survived. Well, the... Yes. Uh, so the transition there is uh, United Shore, which is a financial services company based in Troy, Michigan, had Nellie play at their holiday party at the Kobo Center in downtown Detroit. Oh, so, that's not your typical Christmas party. No, exactly, yeah. So the, the company tells... Um, the newspaper article I was reading, it says that the company tells us that Nelly performed for more than an hour and the crowd was eating it all up. How many of those employees do you think had the thought, like, why did we bring in Nelly instead of paying him yeah. a few hundred thousand dollars or whatever? Just what? give us a bonus or something. Right. Like that? Yeah, new new employee or match our 401k or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so he played at the United Shore uh, Christmas party. Uh, so there you go. Nelly update. Moving on, though. Paul, let's get right to it. What are your thoughts on the White Sox rebuild? Absolutely love it. Yeah, I think it's those two days, I guess it would have been about a week and a half ago, um, were two of the best um, days for a franchise in like baseball offseason history, I think. <laughs> I mean, you add um, six top-level prospects, and three of which, um, Moncada and then the two pitchers from the Nationals will will play in the big leagues this year. So it's not it's not as much of a you know wait and see approach as maybe what the Cubs went through or like the Phillies Braves what they're doing. They'll be bad this next year, and I think it definitely behooves them to trade away Quintana, Frazier, Cabrera, essentially anyone who you know would get them back something. Um, but I don't think they'll be. I don't think we're like three or four years away. I think we're more like. Uh, two, two years away. You think they can amass enough talent in two years to be a title contender? I do. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, See the the luxury the Cubs had. You know they were building for three four years down the road, so they had some time to kind of fit the pieces together. Mm-hmm. So my fear with the White Sox is that they're getting guys that could. Contribute in a couple of years, but they won't have enough time to fill in the rest of the pieces, and they'll they'll be kind of mediocre again. Where I think you really need the draft picks to bring in. Um, yeah, I mean their last couple of draft picks, uh, Fulmer two years ago, is expected to be either a decent, a, a great middle reliever. A de- I, I agree, yes. a decent reliever or a decent <laughs> starter, and then Zach Collins, a catcher, was um, considered the best hitter in the draft. Um, drafted him num- number ten. By who? Uh, experts. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so I mean, I I think they're and they hired a new. Do you get do you get what I'm saying? A little bit, but I think their their draft picks have gotten better the last couple of years. Yeah, I guess my fear would be they're trading away these studs, Sale, Eaton, uh, Abreu, Quintana, Frazier, uh, for guys that will replace their production in a couple of years. But then that really hasn't answered like the missing pieces they've had. I just hope that in those. But you're turning a couple of years. They'll you're have turning time to do that. one stud into two or three studs. You're multiplying. Well, your... if they all pan out. I mean, they got four really, really good pitching prospects. Mm-hmm. Um, so if two of those pan out, you turn one sale into two studs. 
they got a probably the the number one overall yeah, prospect I mean, in baseball. I agree with the rebuild. Great decision. My fear is that they're just not. Uh, so you would have delaying it long. You know, they're getting guys that will contribute maybe even too soon. You would have traded for more um, like low A type yeah, guys. guys that could have. The risk there is that you don't know, like in a prospect's development, sure. you don't know if they're going to be a I sure thing. Uh, so my question, Paul, they got a lot of prospects that have come back. You've alluded to some of them. Who are kind of your top three to watch this year? So White Sox fans out there, who should the three guys that should be most excited about? Uh, Yohan Mankeda. Uh, hopefully I'll learn how to say his name. Uh, Cuban second baseman, I think, is will be the most exciting guy to watch. Um, He'll start in AAA? Yeah, start in AAA. Similar thing to what the Cubs did with Chris Bryant. They'll wait until, is it May Is it May 1st? Or uh, Yeah, first week in May. First week in May to get an extra year of service time. Um, now, that doesn't change because he played in the majors last year? No, just because it's a September call. Okay. Um, so... I think by far he's he's the guy I'm most excited about. But then you have Giolito, right-handed starter for the well, right-handed starter for the Nats last year. Now for the White Sox, and then uh, Lopez, um, another starter, who will both be up this year. I was looking at the MLB.com prospect list in the top ten for the White Sox, and one, two, three, four, five, six came from the trades they yeah. made. Yep. Um, so Tilson, who was probably fourth, fifth before, is now down to eleven. Um, so Mankata, Mankata, Mankata. I think it's Mankata. Mankata is number one. Julito two. Uh, they have Kopech, Michael Kopech, mm-hmm. at three. Lopez at four, and then Fulmer, uh, who was there before, fifth overall, who we saw pitch here in Champaign. That's right, for Vanderbilt. Yep. Zach Collins, six. Spencer Adams, seven. Zach Birdie, eight. Luis Alexander Basabe. Basabi. Basabi, nine. And then Dale Dunning, uh, ten. So kind of shows you. Yeah, it speaks to how the bad progress the, they, the they progress, made. but then how bad the, the Sox farm system was before. Mm-hmm. Interesting note on uh, Basabi. He's got a twin brother. Yeah, so I was reading about him. He is the second Luis Basabi the Red Sox have dealt in 2016. His twin brother, uh, infielder Luis Alejandro Basabe. This is Luis Alexander Basabe. So Luis Alejandro Basabe was dealt to the Diamondbacks in the trade that brought Brad Ziegler to the uh, Red Sox. So often confused with his twin, Alexander Luis Alexander Basabe, who the White Sox got, is a significantly better prospect, having ranked sixth in the 2016 Red Sox top 10. Switch hitter with plus speed and good raw power. Hmm. I will say, um, before we move on to another topic, that I feel like people um, underestimated Adam Eaton's value. I think he's, um, I think he's a really, really good outfielder, maybe one of the best in the American League last year. And you could tell by people's reaction to the trade that that most people didn't either didn't realize that his numbers had been that great or just don't expect him to continue putting that production up. Well, especially in center field, though. Yeah, that too. I think a lot of people recognized he was a good talent, but they the Nationals didn't have a great plan to utilize his talents well. Hmm. Yeah, I I feel like the the writing is kind of on the wall for Harper. Like 
I don't know that they have a ton of confidence that they're. Well, he's still got two years left. But Eaton's got five, so yeah. I think their plan would be to use him in center for. That but then his value, then he's not worth what they gave up. You mean if they move him to right? In center field, he's like a slightly above average player. Yeah. In right field, he's like one of the probably top five right fielders. Yeah. Uh, should the White Sox trade Abreu and Quintana? Uh, Quintana, yes. I don't know about Abreu. I don't know what type of clubhouse guy he is because he could be a valuable kind of mentor type to Moncada. Um And they're not paying him a ton of money. I think he's at $11 million next year. I would probably trade him, but I wouldn't be upset if they didn't. They okay. should absolutely trade Todd Frazier, who's going to be a free agent after this next season, and Melky Cabrera, who's in the same situation. And David Robertson. And David Robertson, yeah. Okay. Uh, some other winter meeting stuff to recap. Cubs traded for Wade Davis. Uh, seems like the Cubs are just going to kind of pick their closer every year for the next several until... Which you're not a fan of. Until they... Uh, get someone in-house to do it. Uh, not, I mean, it just seems like a uh, kind of lack of foresight to to know that you would need that. They could have traded for Miller. You think Edwards deadline. could be that in a year or two? Uh, hopefully. Uh, I don't think they know. Did you read anything about the Robles Chapman, Joe Madden, little dust-up? I did. Um, it felt a little overblown. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, Chapman essentially said he disagreed with the way Madden used him. And he was asked about it. I didn't hear the exact question. What was it? Uh, I think it was just kind of what thoughts about how the World Series well, went. Or... He could have just said. See, I, yeah, overblown, but Chapman could have just easily towed the line that most players say, and super happy, you know, glad we won. Sure. Seemed like a little bit of a cop-out. Maybe, but um, I don't think he was saying... Uh, like he was upset with Madden, he just disagreed with how he was used. I don't think he, I don't think there was any bitterness that came out. No, I think there is. You think there is? Oh yeah, yeah. It's hard without tone. Like he's saying that through an interpreter. Definitely, definitely. Uh, Rich Hill, Kenley Jansen, and Justin Turner go back to the Dodgers. Um, you know, of course, the Dodgers have a ton of money, and that's why they're getting these guys. But it also seems like players really enjoy playing there. It seems like a good environment. Uh, because Jansen was offered more money, and I'm sure Turner was offered more, more money elsewhere, but they chose to come back uh, to the Dodgers. So just thought that was a uh, kind of interesting thing to follow. Uh, Ian Desmond, I feel like he's the worst signing of the mm-hmm. offseason so far. He went to Colorado, uh, $70 million over five years. He's going to turn 32 this year. Uh, has been a decent player these past few years. I had a real good first half last year, but um, the bottom fell out on, on his year, and he was off for the last couple months. Uh, he'll hit probably 20 to 30 homers, um, probably closer to 30 in cores this year. Uh, pretty league average OBP. He's going to play first base for the Rockies, it sounds like. He's never played first in, in the majors before, and uh, the Rockies had to give up their 11th overall pick. Yeah, that was the big one for me to sign him. And Buster only tweeted that, uh, recent history, the guys that went 11, Max Scherzer, Addison Russell, George Springer, Andy McCutcheon. So I'm not, you know, Desmond has value, but I think that value is found in him being utility guy, can play outfield, mm-hmm. can play second, short, third, can play some first, but as a primary first baseman, I just don't see it. There was thought when they signed him that they might move uh, Blackman or Gonzalez, 
But, and they uh, could still do that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would really want um, Trimbo to, to go to Coors and play first. But their, I feel like their strategy, was it five or six years ago now, was to get like a really fast uh, outfield so that they could cover like the huge outfield there. And if you're putting, if you're planning on trading Blackman or Gonzalez to put Desmond out there, then that's. I don't know much about Desmond's outfield. That's a risk. Ability to see not as good. Well, he came up as a what, third baseman, shortstop. Yeah. I think he's average. Okay. It's kind of like sticking Ben Zobrist in left. Uh, the best free agents left. You tell me where they land, Paul. Ready? Sure. Edwin Encarnacion. I think he resigns. Really? I haven't followed it very closely. No, that's a terrible guess. Uh, Jose Bautista. Uh, I'll say Cardinals. Oh, my. You have those mixed. But Bautista's almost for sure a lock to resign. Well, then I will flip them. And Encarnacion is up in the air by the Cardinals, but he's definitely not going to go back to the Blue Jays. And then Mark Trembo. Go with the Rockies. All right. Okay, uh, last thing that I have before we do baseball on TV. This week, uh, Craig Sager passed away. Yeah. His battle against cancer uh, came to an end this past week. And as we've talked about before, uh, he's got a little crossover with baseball. So if you're unfamiliar, Craig Sager is a sideline reporter uh, in the NBA. Has done that for several decades now. Uh, But he was the first man to greet Hank Aaron at home plate when he broke Babe Ruth's uh, home run record. And I uh, want to play for a clip for you now. He was on the Rich Eisen show uh, this past July talking about uh, that experience. So here is Craig Sager. Hank Aaron's seven fifteen. You know, years and years and years ago, I just saw the video over and over again, and it finally dawned on me. I'm like, who is that guy? There's one of the guys who's at home plate looks awful familiar to me. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's Craig Sager, who's standing right there, home plate with what like, looked like a, a handheld microphone with a with an old recorder. What what was that moment like, Craig? Well, it was uh, very exciting because I was a huge baseball fan, and I'd flown up from Fort My- I mean, from Sarasota, Florida, and uh, I wanted to be at the game. I was getting paid ninety five dollars a week at this radio station, and I just knew he was going to do it that day. And my boss told me. Uh, um, well, you can go. You better be back by drive time tomorrow. You're fired. And so there's two flights, national and eastern, and they had an early morning flight at five. And they got me back. I said, okay. So I went up there. You know, it's cold. It was a rainy day, and didn't have a credential at the time. But I called ahead, and so they had no room in the press box, and all the photographers on the first base side because he's a right-handed batter. And so I was over in that third base well all by myself, and uh, talking to myself and the tape recorder doing a little play-by-play and when he hit it I did instinctively ran out on the field and met him at home and I had the microphone there as Tom House runs in you know here's the ball Henry here's the ball and you know I say to Hank I said my god you you did it what does this moment mean to you and he just goes thank god it's over thank god almighty it's over and then they stopped the game and in that time it took to get the you know, microphone up there in the platform and everything. Um, I'm interviewing his mom. And she, oh, I know he'd do it. Ah, I know he'd do it. And the audio was just fantastic. And, you know, nobody else had it. I mean, nowadays, everybody had wireless microphones sure. on, and he have a GoPro on his head and everything right. else. But, but they had, didn't have anything. And so 
Um, I realized it was a great moment, but I had no idea it was on television, especially during that two shot when he got this, they stopped the game. And then later that summer, I went to the All-Star game in Pittsburgh and I said, Hank, I got some audio from that moment. He goes, oh, okay. He kind of moved off. And then he goes, oh, were you the guy with the trench coat? I go, yeah, that was me. And uh, I said, you need to listen to this. So I played it to him and he had no idea that that audio even existed. And he said, oh, man, when you heard his mom and his dad, he goes, that, he goes, what do you want to do with it? I said, well, it's yours. You do whatever you want with it. He goes, let's give it to the Hall of Fame. I said, okay. So I presented it to the Hall of Fame and gave it to him. And they use it now continuously on the loop. They show the home run and they have a call from the network. And then they go to my interviews at home plate. And it's on a continual loop at Cooperstown. And I got a lifetime pass at the age of 22 to Cooperstown. So you are in the Baseball Hall of Fame, Craig Sager, essentially. Uh, essentially. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So that was uh, Craig Sager. Condolences to his family. Uh, he was good at his job. Yeah, one of a kind for sure. All right. Uh, so baseball on TV. Also a preview of the rest of the episode. We're going to uh, talk about The Simpsons now. Uh, and then do Out of the Box. Uh, my article is on Bud Seeley getting in the Hall of Fame. Uh, what are you going to discuss, Paul? Uh, Joe DiMaggio and uh, the first drip coffee pot. Sounds interesting. Uh, after that, we will discuss our Hall of Fame ballots. Give our official ballots if official if we were granted those by the um, what is it, the Baseball Writers of America mm-hmm. BBWA, uh, and then uh, lastly, we'll, we have an interview with Jeremy Learman, who is an author of a book on baseball's most baffling MVP ballots. So that should be interesting. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we'll close it out by talking about the Brothers Road Trip podcast, which is coming up here in a couple weeks. First, uh, baseball on TV. We finally did probably the most famous episode, uh, most famous baseball-themed episode of a TV show. Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that. I had never heard of it before it was pointed out to us. Yes. Uh, the Simpsons, Season 3, Episode 17, entitled Homer at the Bat. Uh, we just watched it before recording today because mm-hmm. I had to rent it from the library. Yeah, we went to great lengths to provide this. As a side note, uh, everyone should use their local library. It's free to check out things. Yeah, a little, I, was, I was astounded. Yeah, a little background on this. I was texting Peter yesterday explaining to him how to, one, get a library card, and then two, explain to him how funding for libraries works. <laughs> you that didn't you, have to explain that, that. you don't actually have to pay for things when you check out, but uh, that it's tax-funded. Why are taxes going towards me renting The Simpsons? Uh, well, it's a, it's a resource for the community. <laughs> okay. You don't... It, you don't pay. It's property taxes, so you're not paying anything towards it. Well, whatever. Thanks to the property owners in Champaign. Uh, Paul, would you like to explain this episode for us? Um, so uh, um, the power plant where Homer works and Mr. Burns runs or owns uh, has a softball team every year, and typically they're terrible. I think they won two games the year before this episode, and it was their best year yet. Um, and of course, you know, Homer's, uh, bad as you would expect him to be, but he, um, so he signs up for, to be on the softball team and, uh, they appear to be just as bad as you would think, but then Homer, 
Um, similar to the natural, the Robert Redford character in the natural makes a bat out of a, a tree that was struck by lightning and becomes an all-star, really, really good uh, hitter. But then uh, before the last game of the season, they're undefeated, but before the last game of the season, uh, Mr. Burns makes a bet with the the owner of the opposing team, a $1 million bet um, on the game. And so he intervenes, Mr. Burns does, and puts together a team of ringers uh, that features guys like Jose Canseco, King Griffey Jr., Don Mattingly, uh, Steve Sachs, mm-hmm. which is kind of an Mike odd, Socha. Mike Socha, yeah. Um, Ozzy Smith. Um, so just a team of, of all-stars for this soft, last softball game. Long story short, they all get, they all agree to play, but then they all, you know, something happens to them. Various ailments um, sideline all of them, and so they're forced to go back to the original players, and uh, they end up winning. Now, some of those players seem a bit dated because this episode ran in 1992. Mm-hmm. Daryl Strawberry was also in there. I don't think mm-hmm. I mentioned him. King Griffey Jr. Yep. So my question is, it's a uh, softball game, right? Right. But they seem to be playing baseball. At the end? Uh, I guess well, like Roger Clemens pitching. There was a scene of him, uh, like their practice where he was pitching. Is it slow pitch softball? I was a bit yeah. distracted when yeah. we were watching Yes. Okay. Uh, so, like, having Roger Clemens pitch doesn't really mean anything. True. Yeah, so that's the episode. It's a good one. Uh, the clip we are going to play from that episode is Mr. Burns' rationale for pinch-hitting Homer for Daryl Strawberry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, sabermetric people will like this. And then, uh, to end the episode, we'll play the, the classic song that ends the episode. So... Enjoy that. It's a good episode. Uh, if you have suggestions for other baseball-themed episodes, send them our way. It was a lot of fun to watch this Yeah, one. shout out to uh, Matt from Minnesota for uh, putting this one on our radar. All right, well, that does it for Baseball on TV. Make sure to search the hashtag. We'll post a picture from the episode. Uh, I'll have to do that before I return it to the library. Yeah. Maybe I'll check out something else from the library. Okay, next we have Out of the Box. All right. Tie game, bottom of the ninth. Two outs, bases loaded, strawberry coming up. They're going to win the city championship. No thanks to me. Wait, you, strawberry. Good effort today. Take a lap and hit the showers. I'm putting in a right-handed batter to hit for you. What? You're pitch hitting for me? Yes. You see, you're a left-hander and so is the pitcher. If I send up a right-handed batter, it's called playing the percentages. It's what smart managers do to win ball games. But I've got nine home runs today. You should be very proud of yourself. Sit down, Simpson. You're batting for strawberry. I am. Woohoo! Atta boy, Homer. You can do it. Now batting for Daryl Strawberry, Homer Simpson. For out of the box this week, I read an article from NPR.org. I know you're a huge fan of NPR. Did you fall asleep while reading it? No, I did not. The opposite. Um, the article. You woke up. Yeah, it's about coffee. I was emboldened. Um, the article was by Jeff Kaler, and it was called "When Mister Coffee Was the Must-Have Christmas Gift for Java Snobs." And uh, so the article just goes into a little bit of the history and background of the automatic drip coffee machine, which I know sounds fascinating, but really it combines two of my greatest passions in life, which are uh, obviously baseball 
and uh, coffee. I'm a huge coffee drinker, and I've recently, um, in the last year or two, gotten into uh, kind of more of your crafty, snobby type coffee. Um, so I found this really interesting. Uh, so, uh, like I said, he provides a little bit of a background on um, the history of Mr. Coffee, which is the very first automatic drip brewing machine. Uh, in the 1960s, most Americans were as obsessed with coffee as they are today, drink it every day, but they used a machine called a percolator. So it was a different type of uh, a coffee machine, uh, but it made pretty bitter coffee. The, the temperature was really high. I think they said over 212 degrees, and uh, it filtered water through the beans multiple times, which really brought out the, the bitter tones in, um, in the coffee beans. And so uh, this entrepreneur came along, Vincent Morado uh, from Ohio, and with the help of a couple engineers came up with a design for Mr. Coffee, but um, to market Mr. Coffee, and this is where the baseball link comes in, he called on the services of long-retired Yankee great Joe DiMaggio, and I don't know if you know much about DiMaggio, but he is or was intensely private. He wasn't a huge marketer. Uh, wasn't used by a ton of companies. Actually, Mr. Coffee was the the first uh, company that he uh, worked for in in over twenty years. So um, it was kind of a big deal, and he actually um, had an ulcer, so didn't really like coffee, didn't drink it much, and so it was kind of a unique relationship partnership. But he he worked for for Mr. Coffee for Murado for um, a couple decades, and the the machine with Dimaggio's help was a huge hit, sold millions and millions of um of products and uh we have here a uh a christmas commercial which is really what the the article ended with from 1977 all right well here is joe dimaggio for the special people on your gift list giving mr coffee is the delicious way to say merry christmas everyone would love to have mr coffee it's america's number one coffee maker Mr. Coffee with Coffee Saver brews delicious coffee fast, and it saves coffee, too. When you give Mr. Coffee for Christmas, every delicious cup will be a reminder of your thoughtfulness for years to come. This Christmas, give Mr. Coffee. Uh, That's good stuff from Joe DiMaggio. Good find there, Paul. Uh, My article this week comes from uh, ESPN.com. Jason Stark. Uh, It was actually a couple weeks ago. Uh, so Bud C. Lee got into the Hall of Fame. He was voted in by the uh, Today's Game Era Committee, what used to be called the Veterans Committee. Uh, he got 15 of 16 votes. I think you only need 13 of 16 to get in. So Bud C. Lee, along with uh, John Sheerholtz, both uh, will be in the Hall of Fame, both will be inducted next summer. Uh, Bud C. Lee, if you're unfamiliar, he has been commissioner since 1992 or from 1992 until 2015, so not the current commissioner. Uh, He was acting commissioner, or interim commissioner, from 1992 through 1998, and then he became full-fledged commissioner from 98 through 2015. Not sure there's a difference there, but that's how it's uh, defined on his Wikipedia. Uh, So his his Hall of Fame resume, um, I'll just lay out, before we get into the interview with Stark, uh, good stuff. Paul, what would you say for Seelig? What would be kind of his claims to, uh, on a deserving Hall of Fame resume? Uh, I think the wild card. 
is definitely a tick in his favor. Um, I think expansion, like in terms of uh, more fans watching than ever before, is a is a good thing. Um, seem like you know, along with the wild card going to three divisions and uh, thirty teams was was good too. Yeah, because when he took over, it'd only be two best teams, from, right? Not even the two best teams. The winners of the East and West divisions in each league would play each other, and then yeah, you have the World Series. Yeah, and um, you know he was the commissioner when we were we grew up, and he made it a game that was uh, fun to watch and enjoy. I didn't necessarily grow up liking C League; I was kind of indifferent to him. Um, but um, yeah, hard to argue with kind of uh, growing up with it and becoming a fan. So on the resume, commissioner when Peter and Paul Elliott. Yeah. Came of baseball fan age. That'd be like first bullet. Uh, steroid testing is also something I would think he'd put. Yeah, but he kind of ignored it for a while. Sure. Well, that's a good transition. Bad stuff. Uh, what would you say? Well, of course, uh, all-star game overreaction um, at the top of the <laughs> that list. That wouldn't be the top. I that when That's the first thing that comes to mind. I have it fourth on mine. Um, you ha- you uh, would think that the 94 strike would be below the all-star game? I said it's the first thing that came to mind. Um, the strike was bad, uh, ignoring the steroid issue, um, in 98. Those are my top two. And only 98 from 92 through whenever he took action in early, but he didn't become full-time commissioner until 98. So my top four, 94 strike is number one. I can't fathom why a season had to be canceled because of labor stuff. I think terribly detrimental to the game. Number two, steroid era. Not doing more to curb that. Uh, number three, the 2001 contraction sham, how they treated Montreal and uh, made them play a bunch of games in Puerto Rico. And go and Google the 2001 offseason. It's fascinating. But the Marlins owner bought the Red Sox, John Henry. Then the Expos owner, Jeff Loria, bought the Marlins. And then the MLB took over control of mm-hmm. the Expos. Uh, and then they threatened contraction over several different franchises. The White Sox were floated in there. Uh, just, yeah, just horrible um, that they did that. So that was three, and then four is the All-Star Game overreaction. Uh, so I would say that he's not deserving. I agree. Uh, he's done some good, done some bad. Shouldn't avoid looking at the good like a lot of people do, but I just don't think he's Hall of Fame worthy. Anyway, he is going to be in the Hall of Fame. So Jason Stark sat down with him and talked to him about steroids. Uh, I think the, probably the thing that most people think of in connection to C-League today, because 94 is a bit removed. So C-League, why I'm bringing this up, um, I found this really interesting. C-League side of the, the, the story starting in 1998. So there's, you know, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa hitting all these home runs, kind of capturing the nation's attention. First time really since probably the Ripken streak in uh, 95. Um, so in 1998, he said he went to St. Louis to watch the Cardinals play the Cubs. And we were at a series in mm-hmm. 1998, so we could have been at that series. So he said he talked to the Cubs about Sammy and then the Cardinals about McGuire. Neither one said anything about steroids. Uh, so then he went and talked to his baseball people in the commissioner's office to have them look into it. Selig said he's, you know, he asked them what's causing this, why there's so many home runs and, uh, all the baseball people reeled off, you know, their answers, uh, everything from expansion to, uh, quality of pitching, not being as good, 
you know, questions about whether something was different in the baseball. And uh, Seelig says he just kept asking about steroids. He wouldn't he wouldn't take those answers. Um, so then he went and talked to one of his uh, friends from his days as owner of the Brewers and asked Robin Yount, one of the great uh, Brewers players of all time, asked them, what about steroids? And Robin Yount said, Commissioner, the only guy I knew who took them was Jose Canseco. Some tie-in to the Simpsons episode today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Seelig's not thinking it's a big problem. Only one guy that Robin Yount, uh, maybe that's a bit of a small sample size. He went and talked to a lot of baseball people over and over again. And then uh, I guess realized it was a problem because in 2000, he moved to testing minor leaguers, which he could do unilaterally. didn't have to get anyone's approval. Um, so he did do some action. So that's where some of the good comes in. Uh, but before that, he pretty much ignored it. Didn't really talk about it. You know, never mentioned it to the media at all. Something he could have done. But Selig has some some really vulnerable quotes. He says, "You know, I've thought about it a hundred times because I'm pretty tough on myself, and I honestly don't know what else I could have done." That's my answer. Uh, and then in the interview, he says, um, "Now let me ask you a question." Talking to Jason Stark, and I'm being serious. If you had been me then, what would you have done? Uh, so my question to you, Paul, is. What could Seelig have done? If you were in his shoes, what would you have done differently? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard without knowing the kind of details of the job. He's representing the owner's interests. And uh, 98 was the height of the home run chase. And a lot of people were coming back to baseball because home runs are exciting. So it's maybe a way of copying out from a specific answer. But obviously, you push as hard as you can for testing. Try to help the owner see... um, how much of a PR issue this will become after the fact. But yeah, I don't know. Do you have more specific answers? I think using the media, talking about it more, you know, Seelig says he's talking to all his people about it, but I just feel like he was maybe afraid of bringing it up in public. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because, I mean, McGuire, there's that whole thing about the thing in his locker and Larusa and everyone else attacked that reporter for asking the question and writing about it. Right. So if Seelig, you know, thinks there might be a problem with steroids, like, he just kind of stood to the side during all that. Um, what probably hindered his research was that uh, he's never used a computer before. Uh, he's never had email. Email, sorry. Yeah, I think he has a computer, but yeah, has never <laughs> sent or read an email before. Uh, all right, Paul. Uh, baseball's had 10 commissioners, counting Manfred. Uh, how many can you name? Mm, boy. Uh, maybe half. I don't know. Uh, I'll go Budsey League, Faye Vincent, Rob Manfred. Mm-hmm. Did Ben Johnson ever become? Nope. It was just American League. Uh, Landis. Um, yep. He's like a former judge. Yep, Judge Landis. Uh, I think that's about it. All right, not too bad. Uh, so Landis, uh, Happy Chandler, Ford Frick, William Eckert, Bowie Kuhn, Peter Uberoth, uh, Bart Giamani, Faye Vincent, Bud Seelig, Rob Manfred are your 10. Seelig is the fifth to make the Hall of Fame. So you're sitting at 50% of commissioners getting the Hall, so it's not that big of an honor. The ones that haven't made it, uh, Eckert, who was a general, he was a pilot in the Air Force, Uberoth, Giamani, Vincent, and Manfred. So of the nine really eligible Five have now made it more than 50%. All right, well, you can read the rest of the article. It's really interesting. 
Um, he talks a lot about the uh, the impact of the players' union and negotiating, how that um, kind of held them back as well. So go to check that out. It'll be linked to in our podcast episode page. Uh, next up, we're going to talk about our 2017 Hall of Fame ballots. All right, so Hall of Fame, always an interesting topic this time of the year. The uh, 2017 inductees will be announced first week in January, so there'll be a lot more coverage of that leading up to it. One resource I wanted to highlight before we begin, Ryan Thibodeau, who we asked to be on our podcast, but uh, politely declined as he uh, doesn't do uh, podcast interviews. I'm sure he would have done ours if, if he chose to do them. Uh, he has this great resource where he takes all of the ballots that have been publicly uh, or privately announced ahead of time and uh, puts them in his tracker and it shows you where guys sit you know, as of today. Uh, so last time I looked, there had been 44 ballots that were cast um, out of approximately, I think around 450 is what he's hoping to get this year. Um, so still a long ways to go, but it does give you a little taste. Right now, uh, Jeff Bagwell has uh, 89% of the vote. Tim Raines at 87. Pudge Rodriguez at 81%. Vlad Guerrero at 74. Trevor Hoffman 74. Bonds and Clemens at 70. And then... Martinez, Mucina, Schilling, all lower than that. Uh, you have to be 75% or higher. So really it's looking like Bagwell, Reigns, and Pudge have the best chance to make it. This year, to give you the full ballot, also before we begin, and we'll link to both of these in the podcast episode page, uh, there's 34 names on the ballot. I'm just going to rattle them off here. Matt Stairs, Arthur Rhodes, Freddie Sanchez, Pat Burrell, uh, Orlando Cabrera, Jason Veritek, Casey Blake, Carlos Guillen, Melvin Mora, Edgar Renteria, Tim Wakefield, Derek Lee, Maglia Ordonez, Jorge Posada, J.D. Drew, Mike Cameron, Vlad Guerrero, Manny Ramirez, Ivan Rodriguez, Sammy Sosa, Billy Wagner, Gary Sheffield, Larry Walker, Jeff Kent, Fred McGriff, Lee Smith, Mike Messina, Edgar Martinez, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Kurt Schilling, Trevor Hoffman, Tim Raines, Jeff Bagwell. Those are your 34. So Paul... Uh, you can pick up to 10, of course. That's the new rule. Uh, 10 players. Uh, last year you voted for some guys that are on the ballot this year, so I'm sh- sure there's some carryover, but what's your official ballot? So I've got seven guys. Um, out of the new people eligible, I've got uh, Pudge and uh, Manny Ramirez. Those are my two new ones. And then uh, carryovers are Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Tim Raines, Kurt Schilling, and Trevor Hoffman. Couple questions. Uh, you last year uh, in your blog post, which we'll also link to, uh, you talked about why you vote for guys that have histories of mm-hmm. uh, steroid use. Um, so you vote for Bonds and Clemens, um, but say no to guys like Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire. You didn't vote for. Mm-hmm. So what? What kind of gives there? Yeah, I'm not not voting for Sosa and Maguire because of the steroids. Um, I just think they're uh, very one-dimensional players, and both were uh, pretty terrible defenders and didn't really do much of anything else. Um, yeah, I think it'd be more of a conversation, obviously, if they didn't take steroids. But uh, yeah, I just don't think we know um, how many guys took steroids, to what extent it helps when they were on HGH, when they weren't on it. Uh, questions like that. We just don't know the answer to. And so for us to kind of speculate gets pretty murky. Obviously with Bonds and Clemens, 
you know, it's pretty black and white. We know they took steroids, but um, what about like Manny Ramirez or David Ortiz? Um, some of these other guys, A Rod. You, you know, we, with A Rod, we know he took, but we don't know how many years. And so, uh, yeah, I just I'm not a fan of kind of um, us creating kind of a history for these players when we don't know the answers to a lot of those questions. So who are your seven again? Clemens, Bonds, Reigns, Schilling, Hoffman, Manny Ramirez, and Pudge. Okay. Last year, I voted for Griffey, Piazza, Schilling, Mucina, and Reigns. Griffey and Piazza got in. Uh, Kurt Schilling is an idiot, so he has been dropped. So my ballot this year has uh, three players on it. Jeff Bagwell, who I'm not sure why we left off last year. Uh, Mike Mucina and Tim Reigns. That's it. That is it. Pudge? I am best defensive catcher of all time. Uh, Third in war for catchers all time. Wasn't great in the postseason. Took steroids. And uh, was not a terribly prolific home run hitter. Only 300 for his career. So, no. I, I am of the opinion that the Hall of Fame should be for a select group of the greatest players of all time. Now, Mike Mussina makes that cut. Yes. The question is, should the fact that other less deserving players, since they got in, should I change the way I vote? And I'm, I say no. Some people are saying, oh, I, I don't think Sarah Guy should get in, but now that Seelig is in, I guess I should vote for Bonds and Clemens. That's, that's so stupid. Hmm. You know, stick to your guns. So uh, my Hall of Fame is for the best, the most elite of all time. Jeff Bagwell, Mike Messina, Tim Raines. Are my are my votes? I agree to disagree. Certainly. All right. Well, we'll re- also put all this in written form on our website in a couple of weeks, so you can check that out there. If you have thoughts on who should get in, feel free to email us at a foot in the box at gmail.com. All right. From one voting topic to another, we are going to talk to author Jeremy Lehrman about baseball's most baffling MVP ballots. He wrote a book on it, and it's uh, fascinating. More Great inter- book. More interesting than you would think. So, Nine ninety nine on Kindle. Great deal. So Paul has read the book. I have read about the book. And we are going to talk to Jeremy right now. Well, our guest on this week's podcast is Jeremy Lehrman. Uh, he's the author of a very interesting baseball book. It's called Baseball's Most Baffling MVP Ballots. He's also the editor at uh, a baseball website called theplatecoverage.com. Listeners, you can follow Jeremy on Twitter at Jeremy underscore Lehrman. That's L-E-H-R-M-A-N. Jeremy, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, my first question uh, is kind of, it's got two questions in it. So I guess my first two questions, uh, I'll ask them at the same time. One, what motivated you uh, to write a baseball book? And then in particular, what fascinated you about uh, MVP ballots to make you want to write a book about that? Oh, sure. And, you know, the answer to that question it, it is it, it's kind of ties together. So the answer to both questions is, is kind of uh, part and parcel of the same. So in terms of the motivation, uh, I guess the best way to describe it was I was a writer without a project. I have been a professional speechwriter and, and copywriter for many years. And uh, it was about time that I, I started a project uh, that I was most interested in, as opposed to writing for other people, which was enjoyable uh, and paid the bills, but um, had me kind of thinking about, well, 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 gee, I, I'd like to maybe apply 
what little talent I have to something that really interests me and, and what was it that held my interest? Well, for most of my life, the subject that, that fascinated me um, more than any other, the subject that provided me with endless hours of diversion and pleasure was baseball. Hmm. Now, baseball, as you guys know, and as anybody I, I think who reads your blog and listens to this podcast probably knows, you know, there's no shortage of literary endeavors devoted to baseball. Mm-hmm. And so the next question I had was, well, what's the story that I could tell that maybe hasn't been told many, many times before? And it occurred to me, you know, like, like so many other fans of the game, uh, that the annual Major League Baseball Awards, and in particular the MVP, um, they always had this fascination for me. Um, you know, the annual arguments about the award were uh, as ingrained in my appreciation of the game as opening day of the World Series. You know, it's an argument that used to occur at the kitchen table or on a bar stool, and now it's an argument that plays out over the Internet and, mm-hmm. and you know, social media, Facebook, Twitter, and the blog. Um, it's an, and it's an argument that seems to resonate um, with countless fans for every season. Um I thought, well, well, maybe now I have my story. Maybe now I'm onto something. And I started doing the research, and as I'm sure you guys have come across uh, on, online in many different forms, I saw all these kind of these lists of the worst MVPs of all time. And you saw a lot of the same names on these lists. And, and it got me to doing a little bit more research, and, and I started to discover um, some interesting things about some of those names on the list and some interesting things about what was happening in the game at the time of some of these more notorious or controversial awards. And as I started doing the research and getting more interested uh, and kind of untangling these threads uh, attendant to these votes, I thought, well, maybe now I'm onto something. Maybe there's a story here. And that's how I arrived at, at the story, so to speak, which is really the the history of the MVP award is, is told through its most controversial ballots. And then secondarily, or in a broader sense, also the, the history of the game and its times, or, or I should say you know, what the award itself can tell us about the history of the game and its times. Yeah, and I, the, the actual history of the MVP award itself was a little more interesting than I thought. You know, I was initially intrigued, kind of like you said, uh, in the book because I was curious, you know, who is the worst MVP of all time. But the actual history of the award was was interesting to me reading the book. And uh, it sounds like the kind of conception for the for the MVP award came from someone outside of, of baseball entirely, someone from the auto business. Maybe tell uh, that story. Oh, you're, and you're exactly right. And, and this was, I mean certainly one of my favorite chapters to write because the history about the award, as you noted, it really is fascinating. Um, so for those who may not know, the MVP award, as we understand it today, um, in its basic form was created in 1931, but there had been several versions of the award prior to that. Uh, the first of which was created by a guy, as you said, who really had nothing to do with baseball. Um, people may be surprised to learn that the end, the most valuable player award, baseball's most valuable player award, was created by a guy who had made his fame and his money in the automobile industry. There's a guy by the name of Hugh Chalmers. And if I were to describe Hugh Chalmers today, I think maybe the best way for people to think about Chalmers was he was kind of part Henry Ford and part P.T. Barnum. So he was this self-made 
industrialist who also had a bit of the carnival barker in him. In other words, he wanted to sell cars, and he thought the best way to sell cars was to advertise his cars wherever he could. So he was a born salesman, and he saturated newspapers and magazines and billboards and racetracks and ballparks with advertisements for his cars. He sponsored road races and, and exhibitions to showcase his merchandise. And he put advertisements all over, uh, you know, these channels. And he became something of an authority on marketing and advertising. So he would write, uh, he would contribute chapters to books on advertising, and he would write, you know, editorials for the New York Times and other newspapers, and he would give speeches all over the country. He was a regular on the Chamber of Commerce circuit. Now, Back, we're talking about 19, the late 19 aughts. So things were a little less sophisticated back then. The main, the primary uh, medium was newspaper advertising. There was no internet. There was no TV. And this is pre-radio. So we're talking about print advertising. And Chalmers recognized yet another interest. It wasn't just about uh, advertising and marketing and building cars. Also, he enjoyed the game. He was a fan of baseball, and the businessman in him saw the increasing uh, and enormous popularity of baseball. So he thought, well, here's an opportunity. So what Chalmers did prior to the start of the 1910 season, he launched a marketing campaign. The marketing campaign was called the Chalmers Award. And what the Chalmers Award was, was at the end of the season, the leading batter in each league would be awarded a, a brand new, shiny Chalmers Model 30. It was about $1,500 at the time. It was, a, it was a, a very nice automobile for the time. Well, in 1910, Chalmers hatches his marketing plan. He creates this prize. He calls it the Chalmers Award. And it's to his great delight, the award comes down to the two biggest stars in baseball, Ty Cobb and, and Napoleon Lajua. Cobb, obviously, people remember him as kind of this uh, maligned, unpopular, angry guy, uh, whereas Napoleon Lajua, maybe not quite as famous today, um, but was probably the most popular player of his time, certainly among the most well-respected. Um, the, the race was covered with great flourish and relish by the papers of the day. People checked in every day to see who they thought, you know, who was leading uh, in the race. Well, the batting race comes down to the last two games of the season. Cobb is in the league lead. I'm sorry, he leads in Lajua by, let's call it, eight or nine points, depending on which newspaper you're looking at. Cobb's deci Cobb decides, you know, I've got a nice, safe lead. I really want that car. I'm going to sit out the last couple of games of the season. That wasn't exactly the most sportsmanlike thing to do. But, hey, there was a Chalmers 30 on the line, right? Mm -hmm. um, Cobb decides to bench himself. Well, Cobb wasn't the most – he was very popular in the fact that he was well-known with fans, but he wasn't very well-liked, certainly within the league. And uh, the fix was in, so to speak. So the last two games of the season, uh, Cleveland, the Cleveland Naps, are playing in St. Louis, uh, and St. Louis decides to help out uh, Nap Lajua as best they can. The St. Louis manager played his third baseman basically in left field for the entire game. Lajua, seeing what was going on, and now remember, Lajua is he's this, this is a man who hit over 400. This is a man who had won a triple crown. This is a man who knew how to hit. Well, what does Lajua do? He basically bunts down the third base line seven or eight times, and he gets <laughs> seven or eight hit uh, over the course of a doubleheader. It was a blatant and obvious fix. 
it seems as if Lajua had caught Cobb in the batting race. You go eight for eight, well, you've got a pretty good chance of making up some ground. It, it was so clearly a con job, not on the part of Lajua, by the way, who by all accounts knew nothing about what was going on beforehand. He just took what was offered to him. Um, but it was so clearly a scam that the newspapers could not get enough of this. There was, in the biggest headlines you can imagine, every day, this was covered like a matter of state. This was given the type of coverage that a presidential election was given today. Hmm. This is how um, uh, you know, baseball held such a place in the American heart and spirit at the time. It's something that we don't really appreciate today, but, but baseball and boxing were the two biggest games in town. Um, Ty Cobb and Matt Lodger were the two most famous athletes, certainly in America, uh, and maybe certainly, certainly within uh, you know in the world. Well, anyway, every day there's a new story about the scandal. Every day, uh, in every speech and every sermon across the country, every editorial, what are they focusing on? They're focusing on Ty Cobb and Napolajua and what happened in St. Louis and the, and the conspiracy and the scandal and what's happening. Well, in every single article and every single speech and sermon, they're mentioning Chalmers and his Model 30. Hmm. Well, he couldn't have asked for a better outcome. Thomas didn't care who won the batting title. He's trying to sell cars. Mm -hmm. Well, now his cars are being mentioned every single day in every newspaper in America. In the annals of sports advertising and return on investment for your advertising, remember, all this cost Chalmers two cars, the cost of some parts and labor. That's it, pennies. Essentially, he got millions of dollars in advertising. It was an incredible success. And at the end of the day, by the way, because of the controversy, he ended up giving cars to both Lajua and Cobb. Hmm. They got more press for that. And now Chalmers is kind of a hero. But in order for the award to have any sort of credibility moving forward, Chalmers knew he couldn't rely on a scandal. And, and the AL president, Van Johnson, at the time said, you know, no more. We're not giving away cars to, to, you know, for guys for individual achievements. So Chalmers said, well, look, I'm on to something here. I'm not going to just give up my, my advertising campaign. Um, so rather than give it to the leading hitter in the league, I'm going to convene a panel, and the panel is going to vote on the guy who is deemed most useful to his club. And then that player will get my uh, annual award. They'll get my, my uh, Chalmers Model 30 and subsequent models after that. The award went along for a couple of years. Unfortunately, without a scandal and a controversy, it, it, it really, it never again captured the imagination of the public. Chalmers awarded cars for the, ne cars for the next four years. Um, and then he just decided very quietly to move on to his next endeavor. Um, so, and it was a long-winded explanation. I apologize, guys. <laughs> the, the MVP, as we know it today, began as a marketing campaign that had very little to do with baseball. No, that's fascinating. Yeah, I I feel like most baseball fans uh, aren't aware of uh, the roots of, of the award. Getting into to the the ballots that you discuss in the in the book, you kind of talk about how some of the ballots that we see as terrible, or some of the guys that uh, that won that didn't deserve it. Uh, there's some sure. co context involved that would maybe explain it a little bit better. So. Who are a couple guys that uh, we look back at and are like, oh, there's no way they could ever deserve that award. But if you really look into it and you, if you lived during that time, you would have thought differently. Sure. You know, one guy that comes to mind immediately is Johnny Evers. John Evers, who is famous in baseball history. If people remember him, they remember him 
to the famous poem with the line, Tinker to Evers to Chance. Mm-hmm. John Evers was the longtime second baseman for the Chicago Cubs around the turn of the century. And Evers captured his MVP, actually, after he was traded away from the Cubs, who were the best team people remember now because, um, you know, with the Cubs World Series victory this season, uh, everyone knows that the last time, the one time that they had won prior to that was 1908. Well, John Evers was a mainstay of those Cubs team and the 1906 to 1910 Cubs were one of the great teams of all time. Evers, after the 1913 season prior to the 1914 season, he's effectively traded to uh, a terrible team in Boston who, who regularly lost 100 games a year back when teams were playing, you know, only 150 games or so, sometimes even less than that. They were just a terrible team. And what happens? They start winning. And they win so much that they take the pennant, and they eventually take the World Series, and they are known forever as the Miracle Braves. John Avery got a lot of credit for this. In fact, he got so much credit that he was awarded the MVP, which at this time was still known as the Chalmers Award, as we discussed before. Well, if you look at John Avery's statistics today, say, how the hell did this guy take MVP? Mm-hmm. He hit one home run. He drove in 40 runs. Uh, in terms of his batting average, I, I think he probably hit around 290 or so, but he was he was about a league average hitter. How does a guy who hit one home run take the MVP over more deserving teammates, by the way, like by a, a pitcher by the name of Bill James, uh, who once who went something like 27 and, and 9 or some outrageously, you know, amazing uh, record, and he had a sub-2 ERA, and there was another pitcher on the team who did just about as well. How does John Evers take the award over these two guys? Well, he takes the award because the things that were valued most highly in the game at the time were things like baseball intelligence, the ability to hit and run, the ability to bunt, the ability to run the bases in a really smart way and to steal a lot of bases, and the ability to play defense. What was also valued was toughness and grit and what we call hustle today. Well, John Evers embodied all of these things in spades. John Evers weighed 125 pounds, 125 pounds, and yet he was the first guy on the field to throw a punch and to take a punch, um, the first guy on the field to run over a, a, an opposing base runner, the first guy on the field to get himself dirty and bloody uh, over the course of the game. Evers was not a well-liked guy, by the way. He won the MVP. Just, he was detested. He won the award despite his unpopularity because the writers and, and to some extent, to a large extent, the players around him recognized the value that he brought with all these other things, particularly his intelligence, to the game. Today, it would be unthinkable that a player like John Evers, um, with those type of modest statistics, statistics would ever be considered for the award. But it told you a lot about the game in its time. It was a different game. It was a dead ball era. There were no home runs waiting to bail a team out. Uh, teams would win one to nothing, two to one on a regular basis. Uh, you know, they were hitting dirty, dead, sodden baseballs. These balls were, 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 you know, damp with spit and, and, and tobacco juice <laughs> and dirt and grime. Um, you know, these, these guys did not wear any body armor to the plate. They didn't have helmets. Uh, you know, it was a different game. Um, there were no sluggers. A slugger could lead the league with eight or nine home runs in a year. Um, so it was a different, and it was a game that valued players like Johnny Evers a lot more than today. 
Yeah, and I think uh, another kind of popular question or debate is is who is the biggest MVP snub of all time? And you know, there's any mm. number of players or seasons you could talk about, but but you writing about Ted Williams' 1947 season was was pretty fascinating to me. Not only did he win the Triple Crown, which is a pretty big deal, but um, mm. you know, he led the American League in runs, walks, on base percentage, slugging percentage, um, essentially anything, any offensive metric. He was he was the best, and yet he only received, I think, three first place votes in uh, in your research and in your reading. Did you come up with any explanation for how how the voters were so blind to what you know we perceive today to uh, be just true greatness? You know, you'd, you'd like to think that personal feelings don't impact the vote. You'd like to think that, but you know that you know that that's not always the case. Ted Williams won two MVPs. He, he earned two MVPs. He should have claimed at least another two or three. Um, 1947 is probably the worst snub of, of his career and absolutely one of the worst snubs in the history of the award, uh, you're, just as you noted. Um, you know, saying that he won the Triple Crown almost doesn't even do it, it justice, right? I mean, how great he right. really was. He, he basically led the league in every meaningful category. You could lead the league, and he, and he by significant margins, by the way. Uh, you know, Ted didn't run, so he didn't lead the league in stolen bases, mm-hmm. but everything else of any consequence. And he loses the vote to Joe DiMaggio by a single point, by the way, the closest vote in the history of the game. And as you noted, Williams only received three first-place votes. So, wait a minute. Okay, so Joe DiMaggio, he's the most popular and famous player in the world. The Yankees are the best team. So, all right, I, I get how he gets some votes. Um, how, how does Ted Williams only receive three first-place votes when a Yankee reliever, a guy by the name of Joe Page, he got seven first-place votes, a reliever. Mm-hmm. So, so imagine, you know, a... Uh, uh, Robert Chapman getting this season getting more first place votes uh, than Chris Bryant. That's what we're talking about here. Well, it boils down to the fact that Ted Williams was deeply unpopular with the writers, and he earned it. He he treated people. He, you know, later in life, uh, Williams kind of looked back with some regret with the way he behaved. But he, he treated people very poorly, and he had no time for the writers. He, when he wasn't ignoring them, he was being cruel to them. He never missed an opportunity to kind of rub them the wrong way. And in this particular instance, 1947, despite winning the Triple Crown by a mile, by the way, one writer left him off the ballot completely. Wow. Left him off. said, hey, you're not one of the ten best players in the league. Only three writers gave him a first-place vote. By the way, that's only one first place vote more than a guy by the name of Eddie Juice received. He was a, Eddie Juice was a, a shortstop who hit 205 that year. 205, <laughs> and he received almost as many first place votes as Ted Williams. It was pure, pure voter spite, and it's it's a shame. Look, Ted Williams doesn't need MVP awards to affirm his place in baseball history. He's one of the two or three best hitters who ever lived, but he, you know, he should have had five MVPs. Uh, and he walked away with two, and and partially it was his personality uh, that was responsible for that. Yeah, just a couple more questions. Uh, that that is fascinating. Sure. Ted Williams, definitely one of the biggest snubs of all time. Who won the award uh, that shouldn't have? Who's the worst MVP winner of all time? Ah, uh, okay. So I'm going to cheat a little bit <laughs> because I I think it's it's 
hard to say. I mean, if folks folks can absolutely make their own judgment. And you know, I mean, but to plug the book, you know, the book goes through lots of really bad votes, and and you know, I would leave it up to the reader to decide. But I will say this: from my perspective, um, any year that a short reliever was named MVP stands as among the very worst MVP selections of all time. Um, and I'm three that come to mind immediately are Raleigh Fingers in 1981, uh, Willie Hernandez in, or Guillermo Hernandez in 1984, uh, and then maybe the worst of all of these three would be Dennis Eckersley in 1992. The Eckersley Award is just, it's brutally bad. Hmm. Um, it wasn't even one of the two or three best years of his career, and he took the award over over vastly more deserving candidates, including guys like Mike Messina and Roger Clemens. So the writers, you know, simply refused to give the award to a starting pitcher, but it's okay to give it to a guy who, you know, who pitched 75 innings or whatever it was. Um, so I would say any award given to a short reliever is pretty terrible. And then there's one other that people might be interested in reading about that comes to mind, and that is the 1925 ALNVP, a guy by the name of Roger Peckinpah, shortstop for the Senators, Washington Senators. Senators made it to the World Series. They had been a, a previously not a very good team, uh, although in the mid-20s they, they had a, a, a two- or three-year run where they made a couple of World Series and won World Championship. Um, Peckinpah was a below-average shortstop and a below-average hitter, and the writers somehow named him MVP, partially because some of the more obvious candidates at the time uh, weren't eligible based on the rules uh, of the award at the time. The second iteration of the MVP, uh, which began in 1922 in the American League, um, and this was an official baseball award at this time, um, players were only allowed to win the award one time over the course of a career. Hmm. Very silly, which means that Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth, was named MVP once. He was the best player in baseball uh, maybe 13 or 14 times. He, he won the award once. Um, Walter Johnson, Peckinpah's teammate on the Senators, well, he won the, the year prior, so he wasn't eligible for the award again. Um, there were several others. Another rule at the time was a writer could only vote for one player on a team. So in other words, this would be today like saying that if a writer voted for Chris Bryant of the Cubs, he was not allowed to also vote for Anthony Rizzo. He was not allowed to give his second or third or fourth place vote to Anthony Rizzo because he had already voted for a Cub. Mm -hmm. um, so they had these silly rules in place. And basically the writers said, well, we, we should give it to the Senators because they, they, they won the World Series after all. And who's eligible on the Senators? Well, Roger Peckinpah, he's, he's a good guy. He's a, he's a smart player. He's been in the league a long time. He's really well-respected. You know, I don't think they would have won the award without – sorry, they wouldn't have made the World Series without Roger Peckinpah. Uh, they lost the World Series because of Roger Peckinpah, by the way. He committed eight errors in seven games. Poor guy. Eight errors. Played on one leg. I mean, basically, he was Bill Buckner at shortstop. Um, so he made eight errors, cost the team the World Series – but was named MVP uh, over much more deserving teammates uh, like Goose Gosling and, and uh, some others. Uh, so those are the ones that stick out the most to me, are the, are the relievers who won the award uh, and Roger Packenpah. Yeah, well, I think Packenpah won because of that name. It's a classic baseball uh, last name. 
<laughs> you know, it is. It's a great name, actually. <laughs> it really is. Uh, my last question, uh, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, appreciate it. Last question, uh, MVPs this year, uh, Mookie, or not Mookie Betts, Mike Trout and Chris Bryant seem to be pretty deserving, but it seems like for the most part uh, we're much better off now than we used to be uh, in terms of the voting process and, and who gets the MVP. Uh, would you agree with that, and do you think this is kind of like the golden era of <laughs> MVP ballots? I would agree with that. I was kind of shocked in the best way that Trout was named MVP. In fact, I, I wrote an article on the website a couple of weeks before the ballot saying, look, Mike Trout's not going to win MVP this year, guys, so you know he's going to be snubbed again. Or, well, when I say snubbed, there, there are quote, air quotes around that. Um, you know, Mookie Betts is going to be named MVP, and that's okay. Betts had a wonderful year. We all know Mike Trout's the best player in baseball. He's been the best player in baseball the, you know, for the last five years. And it's okay. It's okay. We'll get over it. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll, time will heal these wounds. It's okay <laughs> that Mike Trout's going to be named is going to be the runner-up for the fourth time in five years. That's okay. Well, as everyone knows, he was named MVP, and I again, I was kind of flabbergasted uh, in a really good way. Um, and I think you're right. I think it really does represent um, a change in the approach by the voters. Certainly, a change in the demographics of the voters. I think you know. Uh, lots of of these writers now who are eligible to vote, you know, they were raised on guys like Bill James and Rob Nair, and, and, and they are much more comfortable with advanced statistical analysis and sabermetrics. Um, they have so much more data, by the way, at their fingertips. It's, 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 and in some ways, something is lost with that. I will, I will concede that there is something to be said about actually watching players play every single day and going to the ballpark, which is what the beat writers, you know, which is what they used to do. Um, and actually seeing and being, and being part of the fabric of the team and, and seeing, you know, what goes on in the clubhouse. I do think there's value in all that. But that said, I do think the voting is better than ever. We, we haven't really seen a terrible MVP vote, I think, since 2006. I think, I think that was the last really bad one. That was when Morneau took the award over... Joe Maurer and Derek Jeter and Johan Santana. That was the last really questionable vote. Since then, look, you, you can you can debate, but I don't think anyone can say there's been a really terrible, you know, Miguel Cabrera being named MVP in 2012 over Mike Trout, that's not a robbery. I know some people think it is. I mean, the guy, he hit for the Triple Crown. Was Mike Trout the best player in baseball? Yes, but no, Triple Crowns don't come around that often. So I, I do think that the, that the voting is better than ever. But, hey, luckily we have the Cy Young Award. So that vote continues to be pretty terrible. So <laughs> we'll, we'll have that to argue about. <laughs> yeah, it's a, perhaps a sequel book. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, you know, well, geez, with the, you know, what can I write about next? The MVP, their vote has been pretty good. But, you know, then a couple of writers left Verlander off and Kate Upton weighed in and you know, that brought a whole new level of attention. So maybe there is a sequel there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much. Uh, listeners, the book is baseball's most baffling MVP ballots would make a great Christmas gift for a, a baseball uh, fan in your family. Uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Guys, thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. Um, and I, I hope you have wonderful holidays and Merry Christmas. Well, thanks to Jeremy for joining our podcast. Great stuff there. Baseball, I feel like there's just so many little nuggets. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that you can take one little tiny part of it, like the MVP, 
and there's just enough to write a book about it and enough to fill up several minutes of a baseball podcast is quite unbelievable. So thanks to Jeremy. Check out that book. If you're interested, uh, there would be worse things you could get. For, oh, absolutely. For baseball loving and shout out family. Shout out to my podcast of the week. Um, each episode this off season, I'm giving a, a shout out to a, a different podcast. Baseball podcast is baseball by the book, which is where I initially, uh, heard about Lehrman's book it's a podcast that talks with an author of a baseball book each week. So I think there are three episodes in now. It's relatively new. And uh, Lehrman's was the second episode. So recommend um, recommend that podcast. What's the name of it? Baseball by the Book. Great. Check that out. All right. Uh, so our next podcast will be in about 10 days, around December 29th or so. Uh, it's the 4th Elliott Brothers Baseball Podcast. So... If you're new to the podcast, Paul and I take a brother's road trip, uh, baseball-themed, every summer with our older brothers, John and Kevin, and uh, around Christmas time is when we decide on the destination for the next year, so we record that episode, but then we also record an episode with John and Kevin when we're actually on the road trip. So last uh, um, Christmas, uh, we recorded a podcast and chose... Washington, D.C., after a lot of controversy uh, surrounding the voting process, we decided on Washington, D.C. on the podcast, and then we uh, we went to D.C. and recorded another podcast there. year before that, we went to Chicago. Uh, this is actually the seventh annual road trip we've taken. We've been to Denver, Cincinnati, Baltimore, Cooperstown, and then Chicago and D.C. So it's always a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, we'll each give our pitches for where we should go on the podcast and then we'll do the vote and uh, talk about uh, where we're excited to go in 2017. I'll be uh, preparing my pitch over the next week. So be prepared. Any, any hints you want to give tips? No, I really haven't decided which city I'm going to um, pitch yet. I have well, like you two, definitely I, pitch a White Sox road trip. No, no. I mean, looking at the future, this is probably the worst year of the next three or four. So I might even pitch a Cubs. Great. We'll see. I also have some planning to do. So um, if you have ideas for where we could go, slash uh, you want to offer your house or apartment for us to stay at, always looking to make it cost effective. So let us know. You can email our podcast with questions, comments, concerns at afootinthebox at gmail.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, also Stitcher and SoundCloud. Uh, make sure to leave us a review, especially on iTunes. helps us reach more people uh, you can follow us on twitter at a foot in the box also follow jeremy at jeremy underscore Lehrman. and you can check us out online at a foot in the box.com well i think that does it uh, like i mentioned earlier our outro this week will be the song from the simpsons episode that we watched and i think that does it probably anything else just a reminder to keep a foot in the box we shall talk to you in a few days well, Mr. Burns had done it, the power plant had won it, with Roger Clemens clucking all the while. Mike Socia's tragic illness made us smile, while Wade Boggs lay unconscious on the barroom tile. We're talking softball, from Maine to San Diego, talking softball, Manningly and Conseco, Ken Griffey's grotesquely swollen jaw. Steve Sachs and is running with the law. We're talking Homer. 
Ozzy and the Straw. We're talking softball from Maine to San Diego. Talking softball, Mattingly and Canseco. Ken Griffey's grotesquely swollen jaw. Steve Sachs and his running with the law. We're talking Homer, Ozzy and the Straw.